Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is science once again getting lost in your ears. Uh, my name is Chris, and today I am talking about uh, rumours, rumours and hints and allegations of um, possible new particles that may be discovered. And we had the Higgs boson, you know, a couple of years ago, and people are saying, what's next? Everyone wants to know what's well, next. Well, we had gravitational waves quite recently. Is this going to be even bigger than gravitational waves in the physics world? It's these, well, it'll be these... big if we find something, but mm-hmm. um, some of these aren't some of these aren't very big. Some of them are quite small. Well, actually, they're all quite small. You know, in small rumors or small particles. Well, they're small particles, but um, yeah, it looks. I will explain. I will explain. But yeah, it's you know we we need we need to find new new particles. We need to find new physics. You know, the Higgs boson was not enough. We need more. We need something else. And gravitational waves were very cool, absolutely. But um, you know, they were expected. So we need something something new, something different, something we don't know what it is. Something unexpected. Something unexpected. Yeah. So novel. Yeah. Expect the unexpected is what I am talking about today. Uh, Claire. Yeah. Well, today I'm going to be talking. I'm going to be telling a story about the. Uh, first and I think only Australian woman to ever win a Nobel Prize. So mm. that's Elizabeth Blackburn. So I'm going to be telling um, her story and what she won the Nobel Prize for. It was um, it was back in 2009, but I thought it was worth revisiting. Great. Okay. So not exactly new news, but no, but worth a revisit. Oh, you know, I'm not. I'm not you know, new old news. Yeah, 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 yeah. Stu. Um, well, I'm, I'm speaking of how old things are. Um, I'm actually talking about how old the universe will be when it ends and how that will possibly happen. Um, there's a couple of different theories of how that will happen, but uh, some guys have run the numbers and given us a potential date for the end of the universe. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm interested to hear what you have to say here, Stu. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, on with the show. Right, so it is. Uh, there are rumours, there are hints, there are news going around that there may be some new particles being discovered, or perhaps stuff we weren't expecting. And as I was saying in the introduction, this is fairly important for physics because we're in a bit of a rut, particle physics-wise. Um, you know, we have had a uh, a standard model, I suppose you could say. It's in fact the standard model we, <laughs> we normally call it, um, which describes perfectly well everything we see. Uh, so far in, in particle accelerators. And, particles and, and we everything we've measured of the universe and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it works, it works very well. Um, but it, you know, it has some, some issues. You know, it's got a lot of, it feels like it's got a lot of bits to plug the holes. You know, it's just kind of cobbled together out of various observations. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of like numbers that are just kind of have to be measured and people like to be able to predict what these numbers should be rather than just saying they just, they're whatever they are. Um, there's also the fact that uh, it, gravity is like the famous thing. You Clay, you mentioned the gravitational waves, which were prediction of yeah. Einstein's theory of relativity. You know, this doesn't fit well with our – well, gravity is not included at all in our standard model of particle physics. And for something we'd like to think – Why? 
Well, because we can, gravity is too weak to measure in particle accelerators. So right. the, the interaction of gravity with individual particles is negligible. Is that the whole? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Also, it doesn't work well, work well with quantum mechanics, which is the thing that we use to describe, um, yeah, these subatomic particles. Okay. So yeah, quantum mechanics and relativity don't mix well together. So we know we know there has to be something else. There's got to be something else out there. Um, the fact that we have seen things like gravitational waves means that relativity works very well. So you know we can't just chuck it out and say, well, you know, Einstein got it wrong. You know, he obviously he he got you know a lot of things right. So we need some way to reconcile it with the the theories that we see at the, the very small level. See, so, yeah, we have a few issues. Um, so when the Higgs boson was discovered back in um, in 2012, that was kind of the last piece of the standard model, and it itself was kind of a one of these little things to plug the gap. You know, there was basically um, Higgs and his colleagues came up with this thing called the Higgs mechanism, strangely enough. Uh, and it was a way of giving mass, some sort of small mass to all the different particles. And it was just kind of a little mathematical trick, it seemed like. And it turned out to be true. They, they found the actual particle that, that drives this whole mechanism. But again, it, it felt sort of a bit like a, a little trick that they thought of to, to make it work. And, you know, people were a bit disappointed when the Higgs boson was discovered because it's like, well... You know, if that's all it is, it's like, you know, the universe is like it's made out of like bits of tape and, <laughs> you know, paper, like Old cellophane. Yeah. Band-aids. Yeah. Basically. Staples. On, yeah. So we, we need, we basically, people were hoping, people were hoping that they wouldn't find the Higgs boson, they would find something else instead. And in fact, now, we have, now that we found that, we're hoping well, we need to find something else. Plus there is other stuff as well. There is things like, you know, dark matter and dark energy, which we are fairly confident is out there. But um, no one knows knows what they are. So we need to find this stuff. We need to actually find these things. Yeah, it's, it seems like dark matter and dark energy. It's like, well, we don't really know what it is. So we'll just call it dark matter and dark energy until we figure out exactly what's going on. Well, we know it's dark. <laughs> but is it? If we don't even know what it is, can we say that it's dark? Or is it, you know, does it have a color? Does it have a shape? Well, if, if it wasn't dark, you could see it. Well, it's dark to our eyes. At least it is dark to our eyes, yeah, and any other radiation that we um, we know how to measure. Yeah. So yeah, okay. So people are getting excited, I suppose, have been getting excited more recently because there have been some slight hints um, in in some of the accelerators in um, at the uh, the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland, uh, and also at at Fermilab. Well, the Fermilab one is in Chicago. It's not, it's not um. It's it's not you know groundbreaking, so maybe I'll do that one first. But it's a new particle at least, so it's you know that's something I guess. Um, so what they this is um, the Fermilab laboratory in Chicago, which shut down actually a few years ago, but they're still analysing the data. They get a lot of data out of these things, and what they found is a particle called a tetraquark, or a tetraquark, I think is the way you pronounce it. So in in um. Uh, in particle physics, quarks are one of the fundamental particles. They're the things that make up protons and neutrons and that sort yeah. of stuff. Yeah, I've heard of quarks before. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Um, so and those not just the cheese. <laughs> so yeah, protons and neutrons are made out of three quarks each. Um, there are also other particles called mesons that are made out of a quark and an antiquark. So actually, there's two kind of types of quark. Tetraquark is made out of four. Uh, and these have been observed with four different kinds of, of quark in them. And it's sort of basically it's quarks doing something different um, that they don't normally do. And that's quite exciting because, you know, it tells us a bit more about the, the forces that hold quarks together. So that's, that's an interesting one. Do they, just, do they, are they very stable? Do they sort of just appear and then fall apart again? The tetraquarks? Yeah. Yeah, they, they're very unstable. And there has been some debate about whether they actually count as a, a new particle themselves. Uh, or whether they're kind of a molecule made out of, say, a couple of mesons stuck together. Yeah. But um. So it's the you know mm. is it, the question. I guess the question is like, 
look, and you can sort of hold it together for a second, and then as soon as you let go, it falls apart. Yeah, it's a bit like that. But, <laughs> no. the, the idea is to get them to try and bind in this, in this unusual yeah. way. Um, okay, so that, that's maybe that, maybe that's not so exciting. Well, um, maybe I can interest you in the um, in the B meson anomaly. Go on. Uh, this is this is uh, another one that's a bit. Um, I'm going to do this one very briefly because it's very hard to explain what it is. It's basically a type of. Uh, me- I mentioned the mesons. The B mesons have yeah. a um, a bottom quark in them, so they're quite heavy. There are actually, there are six flavors of quark. There is up and down, charm and strange, and top and bottom. <laughs> they're very very um, sensible. Charmed names. and strange. Yeah, yeah. Well, I found a particle. Called that were that was a very different back in the day, and they said, "Well, this is a strange particle," uh, and so that's how the strange quark and got its name. And they named it thus. And its its partner is the charm quark. Charm. And then, anyway, and then Hawkwind named an album "Quark Strangeness and Charm." Did they? Yeah, they did. So, so this is um this basically is an anomaly just in the way that these B mesons decay, the angles that they spread out on. It's basically something that's a bit different to the predictions. This one is actually um. Uh, looking like it could be a, a real thing. It's um, you know, the significance they use in particle physics. They use something could be five sigma, um, um, is what they say. Okay, so sigma is a standard deviation. So when something is within five sigmas, um, is something like um, I've got my notes here. It's it's got a one in three point five million chance of just being due to random chance alone. Mm. So, you know, you're fairly confident you find um uh, a five sigma thing that is it's a real thing. This one is uh, right. three point seven sigma. So they and trying to analyze more data. Um it's getting close to the four sigma level, so it's it's looking fairly good. But the one that people are most excited about is um yeah. slight hints at CERN of there being a new fundamental particle. Um, oh. at 750 giga electron volts, which is the energy used. And now this one is, uh, it's a particular, it's, you know, particular particle interactions. Again, going the details of it is, is not clear. It's only been seen about the, um, the three sigma levels so far. So it's not quite confirmed, but it's, um, this is the one where people are going, well, this, this could be something, something real and something new. And, of course, there are, so there's, apparently there's something like a hundred papers now have been written of theorists trying to explain what this new particle could be, you know, like fitting into their various models. Um, and every theorist has a different idea and a different theory about yeah, what yeah, this is and how it yeah. fits into the but standard it wasn't, model? Well, into an extension of the standard model. Right. But it wasn't predicted by anyone. So this is a good ah. one because this could be something new. And so this is this is one that's got everyone excited, I suppose. Um, and it's the easiest one to explain. Like, you know, the other one's a bit hard to explain, as you could just heard. Um, but the, the, uh, this, um, this one, uh, it's, it's called the diphoton excess because it, it comes in a decay of two photons coming out. Um, yeah, this is the one where people are kind of hoping that as we collect more data from the Large Hadron Collider, it's, you know, now that it is whipping around at its full speed, that, um, yeah, we'll hopefully see some hints of a new particle. And then we'll be able to go forward with particle physics. We won't be stuck in the 1970s as we have been for No, no more years. being stuck in a ditch. Yeah, that's right. So is there, any, is there any clues of what this new fundamental particle might do or why it why it's there or how it interacts with the other ones or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, how far do your rumours go, Chris? Well, um, the, the, uh, I found an article on it where it had the fantastic sentence, the most exciting interpretation would then be that the resonance is a portal to the dark sector. And I think we can all agree that that is an exceedingly exciting sentence. That's, that's pretty cool. That that's is a pretty cool sector. That's the particle physics yeah. for a long time. So if the resonance is indeed a portal to the dark sector... That would be pretty excellent.
So we get caught up talking about new research on this show. So I thought I'd tell you um, a story about someone who I think should be more famous than Dodd Bradman in this country, our first and only Australian woman to ever win a Nobel Prize. So that's uh, Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn. Now, have you guys heard of Elizabeth Blackburn? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 Um, Good. Great. Now, Elizabeth, she, as I said in the intro, she won her Nobel Prize back in 2009, and it was for her work discovering an enzyme called telomerase. Ah. Yeah. This is a thing that's on the end of DNA. Which is the thing that's on the end of DNA, exactly. It's like the bits on the end of your shoelaces that hold them together. Ah. Beautiful analogy, Chris. Very good. Very nice. Um. Yes. So Elizabeth's research showed that there are these certain DNA sequences at the end of chromosomes, just like at the end of your shoelaces, um, and these are called telomere sequences. They're very important as they – so they're like shoelaces Mm -hmm. at the the end of shoelaces, which I think actually have a name, a specific name, the end of shoelaces. I wish I could remember that. Anyway – yeah, so they have they protect the chromosomes from damage that can happen when you have to replicate yourself over and over again. So yep. as chromosomes do, they replicate um, during mitosis over and over again. And um, When the cells divide, you mean? When the cells divide, yep. I mean. Yep, yep. So this, um, uh, these telomeres and this telomerase make sure that all the genet- genetic material that was there when the cell was one cell um, is doubled and intact when the cell becomes two. Right. So effectively, um, they the, the telomeres stop the DNA strands unraveling. Yeah, yeah. Un- uncontrollably. Like your shoelace. Yeah, exactly like your shoelace. <laughs> uncontrollably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the discovery transformed our understanding about how cells age and how they die and actually opened up an entire new sort of field of molecular biology. Mm-hmm. And it all started in Australia, in right. Tasmania, in fact. Wow. Yeah, I know. So Elizabeth was born in Hobart. Uh, she came from a big family. She was one of seven kids. And from a very early on, she enjoyed and loved science. And this was something that was encouraged by her parents. She reached her teenage years in Tassie and then moved across to Melbourne where she studied at University High, right next to Melbourne University there. After school, she went on to study biology. She went to the Uni of Melbourne. um, And then from Australia, she went on to Cambridge and then to Yale. Mm -hmm. Now, for her postdoc work, she looked at a single-celled organism called tetrahymena, tetrahymena, which... um, many people lovingly refer to as pond scum. Hmm. Mm, pond mm. scum. Great thing to work on. Um, turns out it's very useful to work to look at. And Blackburn looked at the chromosomes in pond scum cells and specifically the telomeres um, and found that when you looked at their DNA, they had these repetitive chains of sequences or repetitive co- codes mm-hmm. across the chromosomes which was a landmark discovery. So she continued working on the telomeres, um, but then when once went, went one step further, suggesting that there, were actually, there was actually this unique enzyme that makes sure that this region at the end of the chromosome replicates correctly. So not only are there um, the shoelace parts at the end mm-hmm. of the shoelace, but there's also some enzyme making sure those shoelace parts work okay. correctly and do their job. So if your shoelace parts get frayed, then there's an enzyme to 
to help them out. Just to extend your analogy, Chris. Right. I'm just going to look at what those things are called on the end of their shoelace. Just, just, just keep talking amongst yourselves. Yeah. Um, so her theory was sort of that in young organisms, this enzyme works to rebuild the ends of the chromosomes and protect them in cells. Um, but in older organisms, it allows the chromosomes to decay a little bit. So basically, um, it's responsible for telling a cell how old it is. Um, uh, it's an aglet. An aglet. Yeah. So to, the telomeres are just like aglets. They are the, just like aglets. The bits at the end of your shoelaces. Yes. Now, um, at this stage, the enzyme remained elusive. It was completely hypothetical. Uh, but if its existence could be proved, it would be the first step to, towards understanding the aging process, mm-hmm. um, help in researching degenerative diseases where healthy young cells die and um, in cancer how they they reproduce uncontrollably. But a lot of people doubted the enzyme existed altogether. Um, of course, I should say at this point, Blackburn didn't work alone to win the Nobel Prize. She actually worked collaboratively and shared the prize with an American woman named Carol Greider. Mm. Enter Carol Greider. She's from California. Um, and she actually had dyslexia, which made school difficult for her. But she had a true passion and a perseverance for science. Um, after school, she finished off her undergrad in science and then under Elizabeth Blackburn's supervision threw herself into the search for the telomeres regulating enzyme. Now they tried one method after the other to try and get this, Mm -hmm. to try and find this enzyme. They looked at proteins um, and, uh, but after seven or eight months of dead ends, they, they discussed the possibility of using these short bits of DNA instead of actual proteins to try and, um, bring out this enzyme. So fast forward to just before Christmas and um, Carol Greider was mm-hmm. having some sort of some sort of family dispute and was really not looking forward to going home for Christmas. So she's like, mm, actually, instead of going home for Christmas, I'm just going to stay here and run my experiments. In the lab. I'm going to stay in the lab. I'm just going to stay in the lab, run my experiments, and I'll use this as an excuse not to have to see yeah, my yeah. family pretty much. Um, so she set up a new experiment a couple of days in advance. She returned on Christmas Day to check the results and like some sort of scientific Christmas Isaac Newton miracle, <laughs> as Isaac Newton had the same birthday as uh, baby Jesus. We won't give him the credit though. No, we, we won't give it's him a, the credit. A, it's a science miss miracle. It's, yeah. it's science miss miracle. Um there was an unfamiliar protein visible on the telomere and oh. it was acting just as um, they had predicted it to be acting. So for months afterwards, both Blackburn and Greta tested every possible explanation um, for what they were seeing. And soon enough, they were certain that this enzyme, um, this was the enzyme that they were looking for and they named it telomerase. Now, this enzyme was regulating the growth of the telomere and it was adding these repetitive bits of DNA to the end of the chromosome when the cell was young and then turning off and leaving the telomere to sort Mm -hmm. of wear away and the cell to die at the end of its life. Obviously, they caused a sensation in the scientific community and popular press and um, they were awarded the Nobel Prize. Fantastic. Yeah. And... And now Elizabeth Blackburn is a – where is she now? What's she doing these days? So Elizabeth Blackburn, she's continuing her research um, over in the States and um, 
she still I, I think she might work at a at a university over in California. Okay, cool. Yeah. Excellent. One of our great science heroes from Australia. If only there was some, you know, jobs for such great scientists here in Australia. That yeah, would right? be a good thing. <laughs> So there's an old joke uh, about an astrophysicist giving a lecture to a group of undergraduates about the history and future of our own sun, in which he explains that the sun will likely engulf the earth in about five billion years. So a panicked student at the back of the room leaps up out of his chair and says, how long did you say? And the professor repeats again that the sun would engulf the earth in about five billion years. And the student looks relieved and he sits back down and he says, oh, for a second there, I thought you said five million years. You had me worried. <laughs> um, so the takeaway point from that joke is that to humans, the age of the universe and the time scales involved with the evolution of stars and planets are well beyond even the geographic time scales of biological evolution, let alone human time scales. We're talking, you know, huge amounts of time. So estimates for the age of the universe are mind-boggling in their scope, with the Earth being about four and a half billion years old, and so is the rest of our solar system, including the sun. So everything sort of came together around about the same time, about four and a half billion years ago. So if you want to put that in a scale, you might be able to get your head around 4.5 billion seconds would take around 144 years to pass. So if you think of one second and then you think of 4.5 billion seconds would take 144 years to How get How does that to. help me? Well, you know, it's longer than your life, basically, is right. the point. But you will have experienced a billion seconds before your 32nd birthday. So maybe that helps. One billion seconds is about 32 years. Okay. Okay. Um, anyway, the galaxy we live in is a bit over 13 billion years old, and the universe itself clocks in around 13.8 billion years old. But the question that some people have pondered is, it's all very well knowing how old it is, how long is it going to keep going? How long have we got left before the universe uh, finishes? So uh, theoretically, uh, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, if, uh, if the sun engulfs the earth in a bit over 5 billion years, it doesn't really matter much how long after that the universe keeps going to humans necessarily, um, unless, of course, we invent some kind of space travel and able to leave our... Yeah, I mean, the sun will engulf the Earth about five billion years, perhaps, but by well, long before then, it'll have gotten too hot on Earth. Yeah. Um, due yeah. to, like, yeah, that the sun and, is basically... And, yeah, effectively, if we can't move off the Earth, it doesn't really matter yeah. how long the universe ticks on after that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting work for astrophysics, uh, astrophysics because that will help sort of explain what's going to happen to the universe and therefore help explain how the universe functions currently. So the current thinking is that the universe is expanding with all the galaxies moving further apart from each other, being pushed by what they're calling dark energy, which Chris mentioned earlier on. Um, so if that continues at the current rate, the universe will eventually sort of burn out slowly uh, as all the stars run out of energy and they're all isolated and everything goes cold and that's it and it's all over for the universe. Not with a bang, but with a whimper. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, basically, yeah, basically it gets to a point where there's stuff there, but nothing's actually happening anymore. Um, so the other thing is that the expansion of the universe appears to be accelerating 
And this has led to the idea of the universe ending in what they're calling a big rip. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the physics that work currently uh, sort of stop working altogether and uh, space-time sort of tears itself apart in a big catastrophic um, end of the universe. Much more like the what? end of the universe in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy <laughs> where everything sort of gets torn apart and blown up. Yeah, what happens post-rip? Well, it's almost saying? impossible to say. Well, time stops working, space stops working. So well, it it'll, it'll return to mangled. a similar state as what was before the Big Bang, presumably, in which we what can't measure... We can't measure time or space because they don't really exist anymore. Look, this is this is all highly theoretical and it's very difficult to say whether it will happen or not. So um, if it did happen, uh, there's a group of European researchers who looked at a number of scenarios uh, and they submitted a paper in February based on their calculations of when this big rip could potentially happen if that's the way the universe goes. Mm-hmm based on their current observations and understanding of dark energy and making various assumptions, which mathematicians are wont to do when they do these kinds of things, the earliest they could consider the big rip could possibly happen is as soon as 2.8 billion years. That's the earliest it could possibly happen. That's not far away, yeah. That's not far away. Um, The thing is, the sun is calculated to take, um, you know, five billion years to even get as close to the earth they figure that's probably a little bit early yeah it sounds for it to happen but that's you know if if they looked at the worst case scenario right 2.8 billion years so nothing really to worry about for us at this point um they think that that lower limit is far too soon and they admit that it could possibly never happen they figure that the entropy heat death model is just as mm. likely to be the way that the universe runs out, which, which I think, means... which I think gives about uh, from last time we looked at that about a, a trillion years till yeah. everything was completely gone, like it was just black holes essentially sitting in an ever expanding universe. Black which holes is in black holes, pretty depressing. Yeah, but you know, thirteen trillion years is so far off into the future; it's not really, yeah, uh, not really worth worrying. But look, you know, even that even that earliest date of 2.8 billion years is about 2,000 times longer than humans have even existed. So it's kind of difficult to wrap your head around how long that really even is. Yeah. Um, So, you know, even if humans exist in some form in 2.8 billion years, we're unlikely to even be able to recognise what they would be by that time. Yeah. So if someone were to make a time machine and then go into the future... They shouldn't be going more than 2.8 million years into well, the future. They, they may be able to, you know, depends on the, <laughs> the functions of the time, the functionality of the time machine, whether it could Well, they don't want to get out 2.8 million years I later think, and be I like, whoop, And get stuck rip, in a rip. And get stuck more, in a more rip. More interestingly, if humans in 2.8 billion years invent a time machine and come back to visit us, there's no way we're going to recognize them when they get here. So they may well be here already. How about that? All right, that's it for Lost in Science, where we have heard about how the universe might end, or sorry, when the universe might end. Uh, We've learned what it possibly might be made out of, maybe, I don't know, in the dark sector. And we have learned about Elizabeth Blackburn, who basically told us the secret of ageing. That's right. Yeah, basically. Uh, Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne, the airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can get in touch with us at lostinsci at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or find us on Twitter or listen to us on the radio same time next week. And we will get Lost in Science. Science!
Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.